0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: Everybody needs a bit of help, even the best of us. The world's greatest marathon runner has high-tech shoes and a special drink to keep him ahead of the pack. And for the race of her life, the 400 metre champion donned a superhero suit. Was the performance advantage as much psychological as physical? Hi, I'm Amanda Smith, and this is Sporty. On the 25th of September, 2000, a young Indigenous Australian woman had us all holding our breath for 49.11 seconds. It's 20 years ago, that we watched and cheered Cathy Freeman as she ran the 400 metres final at the Sydney Olympic Games. Forget the Melbourne Cup, this was the race that stopped a nation. She was the favourite to win in Australia. We all hoped she'd win. But something that was unexpected was what she wore to run that race. Do you remember the green and gold and grey full body suit complete with a hood? Nobody else in the race was wearing anything like it. So how did it come about? It was created by an English engineer and designer, Eddie Harbour, and a Canadian aerodynamics expert, Len Brownlee. Both Eddie and Len join us here on Sporty. Eddie, how did designing this bodysuit come about for you?
0: It was my first project at Nike. I was hired by Nike in 1998. And I arrived on my first day at work and they were like, so can we design a suit that will help athletes run faster? And I was like, "Okay, let's think about this. And that was really how it began for me. It was a brief given to me as a young designer.
1: So what was your background that, that got you the gig?
0: So I studied fashion design at college in London and then decided to move into more sort of performance area. So I went back to college and did industrial design. Then I designed motorcycle suits in Italy for a while. Then I was hired by the military in England designing wearable computers and uh, load carriage
1: systems. (laughs) Len, how and why did you get involved?
2: Uh, Well, many years ago, I guess about the mid '80s, I was doing my master's thesis in kinesiology at Simon Fraser University in British Columbia. I was looking for a thesis topic and. My running coach at the time, Dr. Doug Clement, had been at an American College of Sports Medicine meeting and had heard a talk by a fellow named Chet Kyle, who's sort of the godfather of cycling aerodynamics. And Chet had suggested in this talk that runners might benefit from drafting and also streamlined apparel, but it was sort of conceptual at that point. Anyway, I started researching it and Ultimately, I went through a master's and a PhD coming up with various clothing designs that would presumably, and and in wind tunnel testing, did reduce the drag on runners, cyclists, and downhill skiers. But um, after I finished my PhD, uh, the project sort of waned, and I went on to do other things. But I had sent a copy of the thesis to Nike, and uh, one day Eddie just rang up in 1998 and said, hey, um, we're thinking about designing some streamlined apparel for runners. Do, do you think aerodynamics would really help? And I said, absolutely. And uh, that started about a 22-year collaboration between us on various projects. So, <laughs>
1: Well, Eddie, were other designers and sportswear companies interested in developing something similar for runners? I mean, were you working in secret at the time?
0: Yeah, so the whole sort of secrecy question of the project was something we were very conscious of at the time, because we felt that we wanted something new and innovative and not in the public domain prior to launching it. And so, yeah, we were pretty secretive, but we also were talking to athletes, and we realized that these athletes were not going to wear this crazy-looking speed suit thing if they hadn't won in competition. So we actually made a stealth Suit we called it the stealth suit for Cathy, which she wore in Gateshead the year of the Olympics earlier in the year, and that was a, a similar. It was all the technology was the same, but it was a, a slightly different design, and it was a grey fabric, and she wore it in Gateshead and won, and, and said that she felt good in it.
1: That was the only time she wore it in competition before the Sydney Olympic Games.
0: Yeah, that's right. Other than that, we did a lot of testing with Cathy developing the suit, so. You could almost look at the suit development in in two sections one was the aerodynamics and the the engineering and the wind tunnel testing and the developing of all the fabrics and we got that sort of we were working on that prior to us initially meeting with kathy and then with kathy we were like okay here's the science here's what we've been working on and then it was all about getting her comfortable in the suit so we we made samples for her um she has very long legs so we had to make a custom sort of pattern for her to fit her legs we went down to Melbourne and we did testing there. And then she was up in Beaverton in Oregon. And then we also would send suits and then she would wear them in training and then do video to camera and say, This bit's uncomfortable or I don't like this or this is good. And then that video would get emailed back to us and then we would make changes. And at the time in 1999, that was quite technically advanced because we were actually watching video of someone sort of from the mm-hmm. day before, which was pretty cool. Yeah.
1: And Len, as I understand it, early parts of the design were thinking around using different fabrics in the bodysuit for different parts of the body. Is that right?
2: Yeah, that was really the innovation, I think, from an aerodynamics perspective. And And just to give you a little background on that, most things that are quite smooth have lower drag than things that are rough. But It's kind of a quirk of physics that if you have a cylindrical object or a circular uh, or global object like a golf ball, if you roughen the surface of those objects just right, you can actually get the drag to come down. And that's because instead of the airflow trying to come around a cylinder, consider a, a vertical cylinder, the airflow trying to come around that cylinder and then breaking free, and having high pressure on the front of the cylinder and very low pressure on the back because there's a big low pressure wake area. Well, if you roughen the cylinder a bit, you kind of mix the bound- what's called the boundary layer of air and you actually get the flow to stay attached longer to the surface of the object. And that reduces the pressure difference between the front and the back of the cylinder. And it turns out that the human body is very much like an assemblage of cylinders. So, if you have the right texture matched to the right diameter and the right limb speed, you can effectively reduce the drag on each limb segment of the body. And on cylinders, the reduction can be as much as 50% of the drag. On the human body, because the cylinders are tapered, the limb segments are tapered, the reduction is typically quite a bit less, around 20%. But if you do that effectively on each segment, uh, you can reduce the overall drag on the body.
1: And Len, how different was this to the general thinking at the time about what kind of outfit was best for runners to be wearing?
2: Runners tend to, had really been quite conservative, I think, in their apparel choices. And I remember one of the first slides Eddie showed me was a comparison of cyclists from, you know, 1890s to nineteen twenties Of speed skaters from the 1960s to the 1980s and the difference in apparel as both sports kind of caught on that you needed to reduce the air resistance if you wanted to maximize your velocity and runners for a number of reasons didn't do that one I, i think it was just wanting to have freedom of movement two Runners work very hard to develop the musculature they have and they like to show it off. So, if you cover it in a suit, it kind of defeats that purpose. But what they don't realize is that skin by itself is quite slow compared to a textured fabric in most areas of the body.
1: Why the hood as part of the suit?
2: What we found in the wind tunnel was that if an athlete had fairly long hair or any reasonable length of hair, the drag was considerably higher than if they wore a very tight-fitting hood. And so the ultimate expression of the suit was to have the hood up. I mean, it could be worn hood down. That was certainly an option. But if you wanted the ultimate effect, then aerodynamic effect, then you you had to wear it with the hood up.
1: And why was the fabric of this suit, um, well, it was mainly green and grey and gold, but it was also silver at the hands and the ankles. Why was that? Was that just a design thing or was that for aerodynamics or some other performance reason?
2: Well, Eddie is a very good designer and he he takes uh, physical principles or physics principles and applies them to his designs. So, While you can reduce pressure drag by properly texturing cylindrical objects, you can't really do that with something like the hands or down right at the ankle because you're not able to get airflow to work with you and trip the flow, as it's called. So in those areas, you're just trying to reduce frictional drag. And you do that by making something as streamlined as possible. So tenting over the fingers and the knuckles of the hand and bringing something around so the malleolus of the of the ankle and that was done with a silver stretch fabric that had a coating on it a polyurethane coating on it it made it a lot smoother
1: Was there ever a question that this swift suit might not be permitted, though, by athletics authorities? You know, in the way that the fast suit came into swimming for a while, but then was banned. Was there a possibility of that happening with the suit that you guys were designing?
0: Yeah, what we were thinking. So when we began the project, we were looking very much at speed skating and we realized that no one had worn speed suits in track and field or athletics before. So we knew there were no rules. So we decided that what we would do would be follow the rules set down by the speed skating federation. And what they said in their rules was that the suit, one of them was that the suit can't come more than five millimeters away from the body. So that means that you can't have fairings or anything like that. We needed to Follow some rules, so we followed the speed skating rules. And then the suit and the technology went through the normal approval processes and, and was approved for use.
1: Well, Eddie, at the Sydney Olympic Games, Kathy Freeman didn't wear that suit in the heats. Mm. Uh, now, why was that?
0: Well, the thing with the suit was that it was an option for Kathy. So I think for her, what was going through her mind was that I think she was saving it for the final. It was the thing that she was going to wear in the biggest race of her life.
1: So you didn't know, Eddie, for sure whether she was going to wear it in the final of that 400 metres race or not at Sydney?
0: We didn't know until she stepped out onto the track in her warm-ups. And even then we didn't know because it was covered up and she had the hood down. When I say we, it was Rick McDonald, the project manager, sat next to me, had some binoculars and he saw her lean down and do up her shoelaces and therefore reveal the silver hand. (laughs) And then obviously we knew she was wearing and we knew that it was game on basically.
1: Well then, did the swift suit make her go faster?
2: You know, I think that's that's difficult to say. Um, Typically, in in all the research we've done, their speed improves by, you know, somewhere around half a percent. I don't think it made the difference between her winning and losing. She was quite far ahead. But I think in terms of not only the, the physical presence but the psychology of it. You know, I think it gave her some confidence. I think I, I actually heard Kathryn Murray interviewed about that race at the twenty twelve Olympics. And she said, Well, we all knew Kathy was going to win and then when she showed up in that suit, well <laughs> we knew we were we were racing for second or third. So the the effects that
0: wearing it would have had on her was almost like a sort of a suit of armour, almost protected from the pressure. So I think there was a psychological advantage in her mind and in the, the other athlete's mind. And then we'd done everything we could to make sure that the performance benefit was there too.
1: And yet, Len, not many other sprinters, to my knowledge, have raced in that kind of full-body suit since. Now, why is that?
2: As I mentioned before, I think there's a barrier of conservatism in track and field to some extent. You know, a lot of the Olympics subsequent to Sydney have been held under very warm conditions where a full uh, suit would have been, you know, uncomfortable to wear.
0: And I think those performance benefits are more evident in sliding sports so in cycling and speed skating sports, which Len and I have both worked in. So I think that um in running the advantages are there, but they're relatively small compared to sliding sports.
1: Okay, so where next for innovation in sports where Eddie,
0: yeah, a lot of my work these days is focused on wearable electronics. So embedding technology within garments. I mean, the, the most exciting project I'm working on at the moment I can't tell you about, but it's no. it's really really fascinating, and it's really about sensing and electronics within clothing. Is this
1: in a sport context?
0: Yeah, in a sport context. Yeah, and it's I mean, it's it's not just the project I'm working on; it's the whole industry is looking at technology within clothing. I mean, if you're asking me for a prediction of where things are going to be, that's definitely what I would say. We would, be, we would be looking at embedded technology within clothing, yeah.
2: If you look at an F1, a Formula One race team, and, you know, next to the track will be a couple of trailers full of guys and computers monitoring absolutely everything about the race car on the track. And you could certainly transplant that scenario to some extent to wearable technology in athletic apparel. Uh, So that that may be uh, a direction for the future.
1: And Len, what else are you working on at the moment that you can talk about?
2: Well, there's only a limited number of things I can talk about, unfortunately. One is a time trial helmet, a cycling time trial helmet that's innovative in its impact protection, the source of its impact protection. Rather than just using condensed foam, it uses a different type of material uh, so that's one project. One of the last projects I've worked on with Nike is a series of vortex generators called arrow blades. Kipchoji ended up wearing those. These are little plastic uh, triangles, raised triangles that are embedded on kinesio tape. And so you you get away from having to wear a full suit, but you still get the aerodynamic benefits of roughening the surface. And that's, that's just worn on the running singlet? Uh, on their skin or on the singlet. They can stick the tape right onto their skin or they can be embedded onto the clothing. Anyway, Kipchoji won or set the World Marathon best time wearing those uh, blades. Right, so it wasn't just the shoes. No, it wasn't just the shoes. <laughs> 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 yeah, There's a little little fight between footwear and apparel, I guess. But yeah, no, the shoes were definitely uh, consequential, but the apparel also helped.
1: Well, look, I'm I'm curious as to what each of you thinks about, I suppose, purists who complain about technology creating unfair advantages in the sorts of things that you're creating in sport. Eddie, what, what's what's your thoughts about that?
0: So for me, I always think about, well, my, in fact, my mind goes to shoes. And so I'm thinking, okay, so our athletes wear shoes with bikes on them um, and have done for years and years. And those are continually evolving and continually improving. And we don't expect athletes to run in bare feet. So I think that apparel is the same. I think um, clothing isn't something that we always think about technology, embedded uh, technology within clothing. But I think it's the same thing. And I think that technology and sport are completely connected and always will be. For example, we couldn't Get the times of the races that we do in terms of the fractions of seconds that are measured without technology. So I, I don't think we can separate the two. I just think that the governing bodies create uh, the boundaries within which we design. So that relationship is always going to be there and then the boundaries are created and then we design within those boundaries.
2: Lynn, your views? I think we're always inspired by great athletic performances. And, you know, the, the motto of the Olympics is higher, faster, stronger. And, and so the athlete should be able to achieve their physiological maximum. And that, that comes by having the best apparel, the best shoes, the best equipment.
1: And Len Brownlee is an aerodynamics engineer. Eddie Harbour is a designer and engineer. And they created the full body suit worn by Cathy Freeman in the 400 metres final at the Sydney Olympic Games 20 years ago. How time flies. It's great to have you both with us to help us remember it. Thank you, Eddie.
2: You're welcome. Thank you.
1: And thank you to you too, Len.
2: Thank you for having us.
1: you're listening to Sporty with Amanda Smith. Now Len Brownlee, the aerodynamics guy, mentioned there Elliot Kipchoge, the world's greatest marathon runner. And apart from Kipchoge's extraordinary talent and effort, the things that are said to add to his success are, well, wearing those vortex generators, the blades that Len designed, plus of course the whiz-bang shoes and a special drink so you just heard a little bit about the aeroblades and we've talked about his high-tech running shoes before here on sporty but what about the drink it's a new type called a hydrogel so what's that how does it work and is it going to help you or me on a run dr andy king is an exercise physiologist who's reviewed the available evidence andy what's in this new kind of engineered sports drink what's the special ingredient
3: Yeah, it's a really good question, Amanda. The primary thing that sets it apart from kind of your traditional sports gels, if you like, is this ingredient called alginate, which is derived from seaweed, actually. And what it does, you drink it like a drink, and when it hits your stomach, it forms a gel there rather than it being a gel straight out of the pack. Once it's that gel formulation in your stomach, the idea is that it passes into your intestine quicker than a normal drink or gel might do. And then once it's there, it's claimed that that allows the gut to access the carbohydrate in the gel quicker than the sort of more traditional gels do.
1: Yeah, so apart from that thickening agent, otherwise it's carbohydrate. Now, in a drink, when we say carbohydrate, what do you mean? Sugar, yeah?
3: Yeah, sugar, simple as that. Most commonly that would be glucose, but more and more we're seeing that fructose is potentially helpful in certain situations as well.
1: And what's the purpose of taking in sugars in that, uh, carbohydrates before or during exercise?
3: Yeah, the body can only store so much carbohydrate as glycogen. For most people that's around 400 grams stored between the liver and the muscles, but elite athletes might be able to push that up by another 50% or so. But regardless of that, that really is only capable of fueling relatively high intensity aerobic activity for around two hours, maybe a bit less.
1: All right. Now, there is a common problem, I think, that people experience, uh, well, taking in fluid with exercise, and that's, you know, tummy pains, nausea, bloating, that sort of thing. Why is that?
3: Yeah, it's actually probably more common than we even understand. I'd say a lot of people have experienced some sort of gastrointestinal Symptoms at some point when they're exercising, it's more common in runners than cyclists, for example. Um, So part of that is just down simply to the motion of the exercise and anything extra in the stomach or the gut can just cause some sort of mechanical disruption. Um, But also you're asking the gut to do something. You're asking it to transport that carbohydrate across the membrane in the gut and into the bloodstream. So that requires a bit of blood flow.
1: So then does the way that the hydrogel drink get absorbed into your system help reduce those sorts of tummy aches and nausea, the, the gastrointestinal distress?
3: Theoretically, and certainly if you look at the marketing claims around the products, The evidence to date, though, um, and that was sort of the focus of our review, is that that hasn't been found yet. So there's a gap in some of the science that needs to be done, because when we look at Kipchoge's run, for example, he can hold, and most elite marathon runners can hold, a very high relative intensity of their aerobic ceiling. So that hasn't really been tested yet enough, and that might be where we see some of the gut distress occurring more frequently. So the kind of jury's still out, I guess, a little bit on the hydrogels, but so far in the lower intensity work, there's no difference to taking a normal sports drink.
1: But tell me more about the evidence so far for these hydrogel drinks, not just in lowering GI distress, gastrointestinal distress, but other benefits that are claimed for them.
3: Yeah, I mean, the main thing we're interested in is athletes whether we're amateurs or professionals is do we go any quicker isn't it and um, I think beyond that from a scientific point of view you know I'm interested in in how it works but if you ask a runner will I go quicker that's kind of really the main thing and so far in the six studies that have been published there haven't been any performance effects at all that's comparing it of course to a typical sports drink or a gel rather than taking nothing at all so If we're going to make recommendations about what you should do for your endurance sport, then definitely looking to probably take some carbohydrate during your key races, but not necessarily kind of reaching out for the hydrogel just yet. But like I said, some more work to be done when we talk about particularly high race intensities.
1: Right. So it's still not actually known whether the hydrogel drinks work any better than standard carbohydrate sports drinks at that top level of endurance sports, you know, at the Elliott Kipchoge level?
3: No, we're still very much in the work in progress phase with that. Um, and if we look at the kind of anecdotal reports from athletes, there's definitely a lot of claim to say that they notice a difference. But yeah, the, the work needs to be done. And so far, if it matches the lower intensity research that's out there. There won't be anything, but I'm very much one to wait and see what the evidence shows.
1: Yeah. Well, coming back to that lower intensity, if I say run for an hour, maybe two, or cycle for an hour or two, would a hydrogel drink be of benefit to me?
3: The likelihood is that over a normal carbohydrate drink, I don't think it would because the relative intensity of your kind of aerobic ceiling, if you like, that you would be running, I imagine, for that time is much lower than an elite marathon runner would be, mm. but in saying that, you know generally lesser trained people, like I said, at the start, if they've got less available carbohydrate stored, they may find a benefit to doing it. but it probably just comes down to personal preference and that individual gut variation, which can be quite marked between people as to whether the hydrogel is more beneficial than a typical sports drink or not.
1: Well, the hydrogel drinks are, of course, more expensive. Uh, They also probably make you feel like a serious athlete. But what you're saying really, I think, is they're not really worth it if you're not in that top league?
3: So far, the evidence suggests that that is true, yes. Um, If you're looking at shorter duration work, you can probably fuel that with either typical carbohydrate drinks, or you don't need very much or or any at all.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, at the level of exercise that many of us would do, and that's, say, half to one hour a few times a week, do you even need a carbohydrate drink at all for that?
3: Not really. I think if you're training and you're running 5 to 10K and that's taken at a relatively easy pace, you don't need to take anything on board. There might be particular sessions which you describe as a key session or a quality session. Um, it's sort of running lingo. Um, there might be scope to do it there, particularly if that's a, a long or particularly hard session. And we talk about in, in sports nutrition a lot, the idea of periodizing carbohydrate intake. So deliberately withholding or deliberately fueling with more carbohydrate for certain sessions. But in order for that to kind of really be a practice, you're definitely training more than once or twice a week. You're looking at the the athletes who are training four plus, seven plus times weekly In order to get a really good benefit from that.
1: So then what more do you want to know now about these newer hydrogel drinks?
3: Um, Yeah, I think we can split that into two parts. We can split that primarily into that really important performance question. So we want to know in a well-represented scientific sample, if we put the hydrogel in compared to a normal carbohydrate drink, do athletes running at that sort of elite marathon type performance actually benefit? And from a scientific point of view, we're interested in whether that is different in the mechanisms that we understand so far as to how carbohydrate works. So we've got some evidence to show that you can spare or reduce your reliance on that glycogen that I mentioned by taking carbohydrate. And that's probably the primary mechanism by which we would see a performance benefit. Obviously, that becomes much more significant in sports where you might not have the opportunity to then carry on fueling so if you think at the end of a professional bike race for example where access to the team car or just racing conditions means you can't get your hand on a bottle or in running you just don't want to take anything as you really ramp up the speed and the closing kilometers that if you've protected some of that glycogen you've got a real opportunity to hit the home straight really hard and we're interested just to see with the hydrogel whether that holds to be true or whether we can derive any additional benefit compared to the normal sports drinks.
1: And of course, athletes at that level you're talking about are very keen to know all that sort of information. Dr. Andy King is from the Mary MacKillop Institute for Health Research at the Australian Catholic University, where he researches exercise metabolism and athletic performance. Andy, good to talk to you. Thank you very much.
3: Thanks, Amanda. No worries
1: next time here on sporty the first installment in a series called enjoyable exercise it's where i'm on a quest to find the most fun things you can do that also keep you fit from stand-up paddleboarding to bollywood dancing roller skating to trampolining i'm amanda smith hope you'll join me program producer for sporty is damian rabbit